Um, the scripture reading this afternoon is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and it can be found on page 810 of these um, Blue Pew Bibles. You are the light of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. Father in heaven, we give you thanks uh, for this passage that you've put in front of us. Uh, we give you thanks um, that once again you have called your people into your presence uh, and that we get to sit uh, under your word. Um, we don't often enough appreciate just how deeply we need this, uh, just how deeply we need to hear um, your words. The, the psalm that we heard read earlier, the prayer uh, that Catherine led us in, uh, was a wonderful reminder of the gift that your law is to us, that your word uh, is to us. Uh, forgive us uh, for how often we have um, treated your law as a, a burden uh, and, a, and a constraint. Um, it is a gift. Holy Spirit, we pray um, that as we're uh, sitting under your word in this next um, 20, 25 minutes or so, um, that you would be at work in us, that you would uh, cause us to look more and more uh, like Jesus, even in, um, even in our seats, that we would have opportunity uh, to um, marvel at who you are, at what you've done for us, um, to bow our heads uh, and to worship you. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we want to give you thanks. Um, last week, uh, we prayed uh, on behalf of our city, uh, on behalf of the schools, on behalf of uh, the teachers and the staff and the families that we know and, and that, in fact, are in this room that were impacted by this strike. Uh, and we give you thanks uh, that you heard our prayers uh, and that that strike ended. Um, we, we probably are ill-equipped to know how to pray for what lies ahead. Uh, the work that needs to take place, the reconciliation that we long for. Um, but again, we pray uh, for those uh, particularly who are in this room, um, who are working in those schools, who have kids in those schools, um, who are actually part of that community. Father, uh, would you equip them um, to be uh, salt and light, as we're about to hear? Um, Lord Jesus, it is so good to be able to bring concerns like that and requests like that to you in prayer. It would be foolish and foolhardy and, and, and a recipe for despair um, for us uh, to come to this passage uh, and to hear marching orders, as it were, uh, to go into the world and to be salt and light. If we couldn't come to you in prayer first, if we couldn't first uh, lay before you um, the work that only you can do. Um, 
So we give you thanks. Uh, we know that those schools where there has been conflict and where that conflict has been public uh, in many ways represent so many other facets of our city uh, and of the world uh, that you have sent your people out into. Um, not just schools, but workplaces and, and neighborhoods uh, and homes, families. Um, uh, Father, we pray um, that in all of these places uh, you would equip us um, to be salt, uh, to be light. Um, Father, help us to understand um, what that means. Help us to understand uh, what you have done and what you have called us uh, to do. Um, Father, I pray these things as we come uh, to this passage now, uh, and I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we have come now to um, the last few verses of what is probably best considered to be the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the main body of it is going to begin next week uh, in, in verse 17, and we'll continue pretty much all the way uh, through, through chapter 7. But in the introduction, uh, which most scholars you know, think of as being Matthew 5, 3 through 16, uh, so we're looking at the last few verses of that, um, that's the place where Jesus describes the identity of those who live, uh, who inhabit, who have their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Um, again, his, his whole ministry has been described back in chapter 4, um, where it says that he began to preach, uh, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Sermon on the Mount um, is, is his fleshing out of what that means. What does it mean to repent um, and to live lives consistent with this kingdom of heaven that is now at hand? Um, these first several verses, the Beatitudes that we went through, um, and now these last few uh, where Jesus talks about salt and light are describing um, who uh, lives in this kingdom. Uh, the Beatitudes were all about the identity, the characteristics of those people, and as we saw, they were upside down and backwards every way you can imagine, right? Jesus said, blessed um, happy, fortunate, to be envied, living the good life, right, are these people who are poor in spirit and mourning and meek and even being persecuted. Um, that's who these people are. Verses 13 to 16, as we look at salt and light, begin to talk about the impact and the effect that those people have on the world around them. Um, and those two, in some ways, are connected, right? Um, those, they're, they're connected in the sense that, if you think about it, only those who know um, that they don't really belong here in the sense that their hope is not here in this world. Those who are looking forward to a better city, a better country. We talked about that passage in Hebrews last week. Looking to a better city who have a hope in the kingdom of heaven. Only those would be able to have an impact, would be able to change uh, the world around them, wouldn't just try to play the game and fit in and conform. Um, 
I, I often say it, 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 it feels a little bit like the reverse of that, of that Johnny Cash song where he sings, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? And, and we know what he means by that. Um, but in a very real sense, it's actually just the opposite. Um, that it's actually only those whose treasure is in heaven, who are heavenly minded, who have set their hope um, on something other than this world, who can be any earthly good. Because it's only they who can give and love sacrificially and in ways that are costly uh, and, and who risk giving up the things of this world um, in such a way that would actually have an impact. Um, I apologize, I forgot to send in my outline. We talked about this, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks that uh, Bradley and I are gonna try to put an outline for our sermon um, on the, the page of the order of service uh, where the kids are, are filling out the notes. Um, this week, my outline would have been pretty simple, though. Uh, point one, salt. Point two, light. Um, you probably saw that coming. Um, in this passage, Jesus is going to talk about two kinds of impact that his people, that, that Christians, that those who inhabit the kingdom of heaven, um, have on the world. That, in one sense, they're salt. And that's going to be sort of the, the, the negative impact in the sense of it's going to involve pulling the world back from corruption and decay. Um, but there's also light. And that's the more positive impact where we're able to point the world to something worth loving, worth pursuing. Um, and if you think about that, that, that twofold dynamic, salt where we're, where we're arresting the decay and pulling the world back, and light where we're pointing them to Jesus, that's the dynamic of repentance, right? That's exactly what Jesus is calling his own followers to do. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance always involves turning away from sin, away from the things of this world. Um, but it doesn't stop there. We have to turn to something. We to turn to the one who is worth worshiping. Um, so it turns out that the, the kind of impact that Jesus wants his followers to have is precisely the kind that would lead the world in repentance, in turning around and turning towards him. So let's take a look at these two things. So first of all, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, um, you might know this, that in the time that Jesus is speaking, the primary usage, the most important usage of salt um, was not as a spice, not as a seasoning. Um, it was that. It, you know, it, it does help food taste better. Um, but its primary use was as a preservative, right? They didn't have refrigeration then. And so if you had a piece of meat um, that you wanted to not go bad, the only hope you had was to salt that piece of meat like crazy, right? Um, and that would arrest uh, the, the, the natural process of, of decay uh, and, and decomposition. Uh, that meat uh, normally, normally undergoes. And that's kind of what Jesus uh, has in mind here. You are the salt of the earth is a way of saying you're a preservative. Uh, you are here to arrest the decay. So, so notice that right there the assumption is that the natural trajectory of the world is towards corruption and is towards decay. Um, so, so right off the bat, um, Jesus is confronting um, any sort of progress narrative 
um, that, that we might be tempted to believe in. Um, any sort of narrative that says that left to its own accord, the world is getting better and better. Uh, humanity is getting better and better. Um, it's actually kind of only a minority of humanity that's ever been able to believe that to begin with. Um, you find this particularly in kind of the 18th and 19th and, and, and 20th century. Um, you know, as, as technology is, is developing, um, as living standards are, are rising very quickly, um, that's when you find most people um, arguing that the world is able to get better and better and better. Um, H.G. Wells, the, the novelist, um, at one point he wrote this. Um, he said, uh, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, that it will live. Uh, the children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. Um, that was something he wrote as a young man. Uh, later in his life, H.G. E. Wells is the one that wrote The Time Machine, and if you know the plot of The Time Machine, you know it's kind of a very early, I don't know how early, uh, it's a pretty dark dystopian novel, right? And at the end of his life, H.G. Uh, Wells, same guy, um, wrote in his diary, uh, the race, as in the human race, is spent. Um, he, he became so disillusioned uh, by, by humanity that he dropped uh, that, that optimism. Um, Jesus really has no time for that optimism to begin with. Um, the world is not getting better and better. Um, if it seems to you like the world left to its own devices is just getting worse and worse, that's because that's what it's doing. Um, things fall apart. That is the normal way of things. Institutions, if they're not cared for, fall apart. Relationships, if we don't tend to our relationships, certainly friendships, even more certainly marriages, if we don't work at them and constantly cultivate and tend to them, they will decay and fall apart. Um, our workplaces, our schools, all these different institutions. Um, what Jesus is saying is that one of the roles that his people are to play is to get out there into the world, which of its own accord is getting worse and worse, and pull it back. To be in the room, to maybe be the one and only voice speaking sanity against craziness. To pull it back from that kind of decay. I read a, a story of, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name now, and I didn't put it in my notes. The guy who basically invented the iPod and who stuck around at Apple um, until 2008, 2009, so he was also there for the first generation and a half or so of, of the iPhone. Um, he later went on to found uh, uh, Nest, you know, the company that makes your thermostat, right? So this is a, this is, this is a pretty, like, teched-up guy pretty important guy in the world of tech. Um, years later, in reflecting on his contribution to developing the iPhone, um, he was really concerned. I mean, he, he now has written articles and has actually started uh, a whole organization um, designed to put limits on the use of smartphones, especially for kids, because he's worried about their addictive 
the addictive qualities. And one of the things that he said in this article was, you know, he says, when I think back to uh, who was in the room designing this thing, I realize it was a whole bunch of 20-something single guys. And I can't help but think that if there had been one woman in that room or one person with children, if, if we had gone out and found one woman in her 40s and 50s who was raising teenagers that could talk to us about the perspective of what a mom would think about what we were developing, I can't help but think things might have turned out differently. We, we might have designed a better technology um, to begin with. Um, do you know that there have been studies done that show that group decisions can be shaped by just one voice of dissent? That if just one person stands up and speaks against the consensus, um, even if they're just one out of a big group, uh, it, can, it can turn things around. Do you ever find yourself in one of those rooms? Do you ever find yourself in, in one of those contexts where you think, I do not like the direction that this is going, but everybody else seems to be okay with it, and it's scary, and it's hard. One of the things that Jesus is calling us uh, to do here uh, is to speak, to be that one voice of sanity, that one person that's going to be willing to tend to the institution. I say institution, it could be where you work, it could be your school, it could be your neighborhood, it could certainly be your family. Um, one of the things that, that Jesus is calling us to uh, is to speak uh, in a way that arrests the natural trajectory of things towards decay and towards corruption. Because um, the alternative, when Jesus talks about losing our saltiness, if salt has lost its taste, that means we're just blending in, right? Um, I, I said before that, that salt was used as a, a seasoning. Of course, it's only good as a seasoning because it tastes different from the food that it's put on, right? Um, if it tastes just the same or if it tastes like nothing, um, then it's good for nothing, as Jesus says here. Um, do you find yourself with opportunities where you need to stop and pray for the courage to stand out and to be different and to arrest the rot. That's kind of the negative thing that Jesus is calling us towards. The positive, um, the place where Jesus is calling us not just to pull the world back but to point it towards something is where he says you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, Jesus, of course, is also clear that not only is the natural tendency of things towards decay, but also that the world is in darkness. It needs light. Remember, we saw this um, when, we, when we preached through the Gospel of John. Uh, remember, back in, in John 3, one of the things that Jesus said was that this is the judgment. Here's the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Um, Jesus is saying that another role uh, that we have is to be light. Now, if you think about light, um, light actually also has sort of a negative 
uh, role as well, insofar as the first thing that light does is to expose the darkness, to, to expose the way things really are uh, when they're normally able to hide, and normally able to hide uh, in, in darkness. And so this is also a way of saying that the Christian is supposed to be one who, who stands out, um, who's, who's different, who's exposing things for the way they really are uh, in ways that often remain hidden uh, and don't get exposed. Um, but light also has this positive aspect that it doesn't just expose what's in the darkness, but it also shows the way. Um, it also illuminates and allows us to make our way through the world. What this means um, is that when you're in those rooms, uh, when you're in the world and you may be the only one, um, you're being called to point away from the way the world normally goes and towards something better where your hope actually lies. Um, You're being called to be the one who doesn't just play the game in the world, doesn't just go along with the way that everybody else is seeking to get ahead, um, but can actually ask the question, how might everyone in this workplace or this school or this neighborhood or this family flourish uh, and be better? Um, where are there opportunities to point away from the idols of this world towards the one who's actually worth worshiping? Jesus is playing off of a promise um, that God made through the prophet Isaiah. Um, Isaiah, of course, famously talks a lot about light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We know that passage well. We heard it a lot uh, during Advent. But Isaiah also talks about the light shining not only for Israel, but outside of Israel and beyond it, from Israel, that Israel would be a light for the nations. In Isaiah 49, uh, God says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring that back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. Are you finding yourself in those rooms where you have the opportunity to let your light shine? Um, practically speaking, what that looks like is not necessarily um, that you have to uh, jump in um, and be the one presenting the whole gospel all at once. Practically speaking, um, that can just mean you being the data point of the person willing to say, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. The one willing to say, when somebody asks, what did you do over the weekend? You talk about taking a day off and going to church. Um, one of the things that we know about conversions uh, in, our, in our day and age um, is that they take a long time. Um, we don't live in a world where people basically understand Christianity, basically understand the gospel. Um, and just kind of need one person to clear up a few things and, and explain it. 
Um, we live in a world where Christianity is not well understood and seen as, as crazy to the extent that it is. And you being the one person in the room um, saying, I actually believe in Jesus, I actually am a Christian, becomes a data point for people like that, where it might shift them from thinking Christianity is insane to maybe a little less insane. Because here's this person I know that I respect uh, who, who believes. Maybe the most important question I can ask you um, is, are you praying about this? Are, are, are you praying for the opportunities? Are you praying about the opportunities? Um, are you praying for those in your lives, on your street, in your school, in your workplace, who don't know Jesus? Um, what Jesus says in these verses should be a little bit uncomfortable, um, should maybe even be a little scary. Um, and if you're not scared already, let me, let, me, let me say one more thing that should make it even scarier. All the commentaries say that when Jesus says you in verse 13 and you in verse 14, um, he is using a really emphatic form of the word you, just in the way that like the word order, right? In other words, it would not be wrong to translate these verses as Jesus saying, you and only you are the salt of the earth. You and only you are the light of the world. If, if you're not arresting the decay, no one will. If you're not showing the way, no one will. Um, that is kind of a scary thing. It makes you ask, it makes me ask, why on earth would God do it that way? Why us? Why me? Why would he rest that on us? The answer that Scripture gives again and again is that there is something glorifying to God about doing things in ways involving weakness. That there is glory in the fact um, that he works through frail, weak, sinful human beings like us to accomplish his purposes. We read about this a lot in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, it does need to be said, and it needs to be clear, that when Jesus says, you and only you are the light of the world, um, this is the quote that's on the front of your bulletins, when he says, you are the light of the world, he does also say, I am the light of the world. And there is an important difference between us being the light and Jesus being the light. We, we are lights kind of like the moon is a light, right? The moon is a rock orbiting the earth. It is not emitting any light of its own, but it shines brightly because it reflects the light from the sun. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he means, no, no, I am the light. The light is shining from me. I and the Father are one. 
I am God. When Jesus says he is the light of the world, he also says that he is the way. We, we can point people towards the way, but he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Uh, he is the one who is the light in the darkness. He is the one um, that is not just a preservative, arresting the decay in the world, but who actually came to defeat it, who actually came to defeat death and decay. I wanted to be sure and mention that before the end of this sermon, um, both as an encouragement to all of us, um, but also particularly because on the day when we're ordaining an officer in this church, um, our, 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 our book of church order actually says that in services for ordination, um, the sermon preached should be appropriate to the occasion. So this is my attempt to do that. Um, I want to make sure that I say something, uh, certainly to Dave, um, certainly to the other officers who are here of the church, but really to anyone um, who loves the church, uh, who wants to serve in the church, and, and, and who would feel rightly the weight of this burden um, that Jesus is, is, is laying on us when he says, I want you to do this. I want you to be salt, and I want you to be light. Um, I want us to remember our capacity to be salt and to be light and to serve him depends to the utmost on our confidence in his promises, in, in his goodness. Um, above all, the promise that he made um, when he established the church in Matthew 16, where he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, when Gordon Hugenberger was the senior pastor over at, at Park Street um, and teaching at, at Gordon-Conwell, um, he used to... He used to preach out of, out of the Old Testament. There's this, there's this section um, that describes the temple, and it describes these pillars that were in the temple um, that were important and prominent enough to be named, but if you read it carefully, you realize that they're not load-bearing at all. Um, they're, they're there, and they're beautiful, and they're prominent, but they're not actually supporting the building. And, and Gordon used to say, to be a pillar in the church means to have nothing resting on your shoulders um, because you've laid it, laid it all on Jesus. Uh, because he's the one that has promised to build his church. Um, our hope to be salt uh, and to be light in this world uh, is going to rest on our capacity to lean on him, who is the light of the world and the defeater of death. Um, before we come and feed at this table, let's bow our heads and let's pray once more.